Welcome to the Wisdom of Madness with Rasuli and Jesh Darox. Two friends from different worlds discuss the beauty and mystery of creativity. Make me drunk. Make me drunk so I forget about I. Ruin me so I plunge into the house of ruin. I will then become free from the tricks of life and relieved from the duality of the world. Dissolved into nothingness, I will rise above heaven. Deftly and fearlessly, I will demolish my ego. Why should I be stuck in the abyss of life's darkness? Why should I remain like a worm in a cocoon? That's by a mistake by the name of Iraqi. Around 11th century, getting rid of the I, which is probably the most difficult thing in life. And it's difficult because, see, we can get rid of all of our weaknesses by practice. But getting rid of the ego is not as easy. You cannot do it by practice. Ego is something that, it's like a little voice inside our brain that is constantly dominating. And no matter how much we try to get rid of it, it keeps on expanding. One of the trainings that I had as a Sufi was to, for a whole month, I had to know what I mean by I when I say I. Who is the one that I'm representing? For a whole month, that's all I was doing. When I say I'm hungry, who is I who is hungry? And when I say I love you. Who is the I that loves you? To me, that was an amazing experience because it really set me off in a way that at the time I got to realize that what I can create is a lot greater than what I decide to create. There's an interesting conversation a friend and I were having earlier in the week about whether or not I felt I was a spiritual seeker. And I said, no, I'm not a spiritual seeker. Because when you are a spiritual seeker, you're putting yourself in this position of not having something and it's out there somewhere. And when you get it, then everything is going to change. And that is definitely a story of the I. That's a story of the, of the ego, this constant problem of some kind, a constant journey that has to be gone on. And only if this was different, then everything would be, you know, better or whatever. And I was explaining that the way I experience it, I'm definitely moving. I'm definitely on a journey, but it's not a journey of, of seeking. It's a journey of feeling 
that I'm in the exact right place that I'm supposed to be in. And it's such a poignant difference between the two because in one version, you're a seeker who will never really arrive. And in another version, you're already there. And even though I know I have many, many miles, countless miles to continue to journey and explore, I'm not going to delay my sense of joy or fulfillment until I reach some distant point. I'm already here. I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. So I'm not seeking anything. I'm here. And the best metaphor I know in this moment to explain what that feels like is I'm in a river and I'm in the middle of a river and the river is taking me somewhere. As long as I'm in the center of that river, it will take me and it will move me and it's going somewhere, but I don't even have to know where it's going to enjoy that. And for me, there's all of these sticks along the bank, there's these sharp rocks, there's distractions on the edge that can pull me away from the center. And my job is to not have to figure out how to move myself or figure out where I have to get to. My job is just to stay in the center of that river. And for me, when I hear the great poet speak of drunkenness, I associate that with that feeling of a complete lack of concern for the end destination. I associate that with a feeling of looseness in my body, a lack of rigidity, a lack of deciding exactly how things have to be all of the time, which feels to me like being in the flow of that river. The river moves part of my body here and then it sways another here. And my job is just to keep staying in that centerpiece which interestingly will constantly require different muscle movements from me. And I think that's part of the problem with this whole spiritual seeker concept is people use doctrines of certain people who maybe were in a river at a specific time and they talked about their experience in the river. But then they would say, well, when you're in this part of the river, you know, you, you go left or you go right and someone will keep that in their mind and they'll be like, all right, when you're in the river, go left. And that doesn't necessarily apply to every single bend or curve in the river. The most important place to be is in the center of the river. So the water moves me and I feel the water move me and sometimes it asks me to go here and sometimes it asks me to go there. But my relationship constantly is just with being in the center of that river. There are two issues that you touched on that I like to discuss. One is the seeker. And the other one is the center of the river. So let's take them one by one. The seeker who knows what he or she is seeking is not the one who is in the spiritual realm. Because when you say seeking, that means there's something that you're looking for. Already, you're in judgment. Yes. Because you've got to align your path into what you're looking for. So a seeker of healing is the one who is watching out for what they're eating or their diet or whatever it is. A spiritual seeker is somebody who is completely surrendered, just like you are describing, taking the ups and downs of the life itself, not having a path to follow. One of my favorite poets, Kabir, he says, the seeker of the truth goes through deep forests, dark forests, 
and climbs the highest mountains in search of the truth and has to cross these endless oceans and has to go through the desert, endless desert. And as he's going through all of that, he reaches a place in the middle of the desert. He sees a mirage in there. At that point, he realizes he's not getting anywhere. So he stops and he looks back. He thinks, do I want to go back to where I started? And he thinks for a while and it turns, begins to move forward. At that point, he has found the truth. So that is when there is no way to go back. And you know that you're only following a mirage. That is the total surrender, that there's nothing that attracts you. You just surrender to the flow. Now, let's go to the center of the river. See, as you spoke, you talked about being able to maintain yourself in the center of the river. Most people are not in the center of the river. Some of us, as you said, we're not even in the river. So there are people who are in the river, but they're on the edges. To get into the center of the river becomes a major goal for any creative person or anybody. I think is a bigger problem for most of us than maintaining being in the center. Living on the edge of something and not being able to get to the center of it is painful. So we find excuses all the time. Oh, I don't have enough money. I don't have enough place. I don't have enough this. I don't have this. And we just develop this cocoon that Iraqi refers to that we stay in that cocoon and become the worm. Well, to be very clear, um, I did not suggest that I've been in the river center my entire life. I was referring to the space that I feel in now. You're right, it has been an absolutely epic journey that has cost me a lot to get to the place that I am right now. And even being in the, in the center, as I feel I am right now in this moment, there's the constant pull of many different forces, you know, that would take you out of that. And I think there's an interesting relationship in that to look at in the spiritual or creative journey, and that is that the river has its own momentum and it will supply that. It's going where it's going and it will supply that. But you have a part in that too. And your part isn't necessarily to go faster or to even necessarily control or direct where this whole thing is going. And I think as soon as we get into that, it goes into the distractions. But it is our job to use our energy and our force in the forms of choice and free will and our awareness and to train our senses to be able to tell, am I in the center or am I not in the center? Because that's probably the most important question you could ever ask at any moment of your life. Am I in the center or am I not in the center? But as regards to that big problem that a lot of us face, as you mentioned, how do we get to the center? That is a big, a big deal and a very important question. It's a whole, you know, huge series of explorations that could be talked about a, a million different ways because, of course, there are so many ways to get to the center of the river. But the two things that come to me the most to speak about right now, first is T.S. Eliot on the other side of the world speaks about the exact same th thing that your friend Kabir does. 
And he says it this way. He says, there shall be no end to exploring, but in the end, <laughs> which I love that he says that, in the end, we shall return to the place where we began and know it for the first time. And I hear that exact same story in your story, you know, of, of the poet also, you know, who goes here and he goes there and then eventually he just goes, screw all of this stuff. I am the journey. The journey is the internal rather than the external. And there's definitely a really big shift in understanding that. As you so beautifully said, all of these external goals that we think that we have, that we're going towards, it's a really tricky thing. But if you're going towards something that you have a goal towards, what you're actually going towards is the past. Because anything that you know to go towards is something that you learned in the past. So it already exists. And the true spiritual journey, you know, mirrors the true life journey. It mirrors the journey of discovery, which is the same journey of creativity. It's why there's such a strong parallel between all of those things. They're all speaking about the exact same thing on the, on the deepest level. And that is that we're going towards what we don't know. We're going towards what we haven't found yet. We're going towards discovery. And you can't go towards discovery on purpose. You can't find discovery in three easy steps. And you take that journey only when you know that there's nothing behind you. See, the whole beauty of it in here is that he cannot go back anymore exactly. to the mountains. or to, So they're gone. They don't gone. exist anymore. Yes. See, the moment we refer to the past, yes. it becomes judgment. We become trapped in it again. Yeah. So there's really that whole idea that traveler, the seeker is taking every step, is fresh, with no connection to the past, mm. and no connection to mm. the future. It's just a mirage, a horizon. Yes. This is what the whole formula for creativity is, that every step that you take should be unique of its own, yes. not to repeat something yes. in the past. Yeah. Now we go to a verse of Iraqi that I recited at the beginning, and I really want to talk about that one, where he says, fearlessly, I will demolish my ego. Being fearless is not easy either. It takes a long, long time to develop that fearlessness. One of the stories that I like about fearlessness is that there's this man who falls off a cliff in Grand Canyon. And as he going down, he falls on a branch of a tree and he hangs on the branch of the tree in there and he's just holding into it and he keeps on saying, God help me, God help me. And he hears this voice from inside of him that says, let go of the branch. Let go of the branch. <laughs> so finally, as he says, is there another God out there? <laughs> and most of us are in that condition that, you know, we, we hear that let go of the branch, but we still don't trust that. 
We're still looking for another God who can tell us something else. See, that fearlessness is something that it needs to be built inside of us with a complete reliance on a power that is intelletto of, of Michelangelo. So it's really that feeling that makes things happen. What's interesting as you're saying that, what's really coming up for me is how directly related fear is to the familiar. We don't know how to be afraid of things until we're already familiar with them and we recognize them as something that we want or we don't want. So fear has a direct relationship to the past. There's a story in the Bible about these people that are leaving the city that's about to be destroyed and they were told, don't look back. Whatever you do, don't look back. And this one lady, she looks back and she instantly turns to salt. And I think it's an interesting story uh, for several reasons, but the one I think that is kind of coming to me now is that the body is mostly made of water, but it also has a lot of salt in it. And so her turning back, being afraid of losing the past, you know, being afraid of going into this new future where she doesn't know what's there, as soon as she looks back, all the water of her is gone. She's out of the river, you know, and she's just turned into bank. She's just turned into salt. And I think to be fearless in destroying the ego, it, it's such a critical step. Something that I spoke about recently to another friend was about how people want to be really creative and they want to be really powerful as artists, but they don't want to be different. They don't want to be unusual. What they really want is to be wildly creative, but in a completely safe way. And <laughs> those two are complete dichotomies because to be wildly creative literally means you are so far from the known shore, you are so far from the accepted and validated history that you can't even say, is this brilliant? Is it terrible? <laughs> we, don't, we don't even really know. And the wildest creative leaps almost always throughout history are, are roundly rejected by almost everybody, sometimes for many years. It's people sometimes having a story about themselves that they want to let go of the past So they'll say that I want to let go of the past or they'll say I'm without fear at the same time as holding on so tightly to where they've come from, you know? And so when he talks about destruction and the house of ruin, there really is a strong connection between people who go far and great tragedy. And I don't think it's, it's because the tragedy, it had to be that way, but it's because tragedy brings the house of ruin. Tragedy destroys the past sometimes in a way that we can never get back. And in the face of that destruction, some people allow themselves to be further destroyed and other people realize that, oh, I'm still alive, I'm still present, I'm still powerful, even when my past has been destroyed. But I think it's such a beautiful time to be alive because we have the voices of people like him who've gone through great tragedy and they can say, it wasn't the tragedy that did it. It was the dissolution and the dissolving of my own hold on the past. And I strongly believe that when people can learn to do that on purpose, you could let go of the past in peace without it having to be such a horrendous, horrendous experience for people. One of the things that I usually do is is have once in a while I have these retreats that I call them joy of ridiculousness. People come to my retreat for three days to be ridiculous. And that's one of my whole programs that I build into their life 
to recognize that how joyful it is to be ridiculous and how great it is to be ridiculous because if you're ridiculous, there's a hope for what you're doing. But if you're not ridiculous, you're just repeating something of the past. Being ridiculous means being different. Yes. So the whole joy of creativity is the joy of ridiculousness. Absolutely. And even that you know, famous term, history repeats itself, which is such an epic understanding in the culture and has tended to be true throughout most of our existence, it, it's giving us a very clear way out of that. All you have to do is not be a part of history. All you have to do is let go of history completely and then you won't repeat yourself. That's a very challenging thing to do because culture literally is history. This set of ideas we have about how you know other people are going to receive us and what that will mean if they don't, that's also history. And I think it was really fascinating to me in studying creativity when I found out that a lot of the greatest artists from the past, based on what we know of them from their journals and accounts of them, it appears that a lot of them were actually at least partially autistic. And one of the things that's so interesting about, you know, what they call an autistic functioning mind versus a more usual functioning mind is that autistic minds have more difficulty telling what other people think about them. And so with just that one heavy, heavy veil gone, now a person really can go on this journey of, if there really was no one else, if there's no other opinions, if there was no other forces around me dictating what I should and shouldn't do, the only voice that really remains, you know, is the one inside. And that doesn't alone guarantee that somebody's going to become a great artist, but it sure makes it a lot easier because it struck me when you were speaking earlier about attraction and how we can become attracted to different things, how similar that word is to distraction. So there's like attraction and there's distraction. And I wondered if maybe you could break open a little bit what the difference between those two things might mean, because attraction is something I know you speak about a lot in terms of the journey, and distraction seems to be like an attraction that's opposite of that. Yeah, and it's, it's so clear with even the words, you know, when you say attraction is forward, and then when you say distraction is backward, it's from the back. Now, if we get attracted, it's joyful because something is pulling us. But if we get a kick on the butt, that something is hurting us. So when you wake up in the morning by the sound of alarm clock, that means that somebody is kicking you out of bed. I don't care whether it's mechanical or individual, somebody is kicking you out of bed. Mm. But when you wake up with that feeling, this morning I woke up about five o'clock in the morning and the whole place was pink. And I thought, wow, what a beauty. So I came outside and I was shivering cold, but the beauty of the beautiful pink sky made me get in the car and drive around. Now I wasn't planning that pink air, it came. That pink air has an impact on me because I took it in, I let that attract me. The pink air in there is going to build up into probably several paintings that it, I know that it comes out of my, you know, subconsciousness because I experienced that pink sky. So there are times that we're attracted to something, but we don't really pay attention 
to our attraction, mm-hmm. which is okay, that's another thing that I'm attracted to. And when we take that a little bit more into these are clues that guide me, yes, thing changes. Yes. These attractions becomes the clues yes. that guide versus distraction versus somebody keep on throwing us out of the place. Now, that might be a good idea to get thrown out of the place because sometimes we need somebody to break the cocoon so we can fly out. But that moment is going to be something that we are aware of or we accept it, take it in, not to get nervous and say, oh, why did this happen to me? Why did I lose my job? Why this whole thing happens? So this attraction and destruction is really very interesting in life because this is up to us to decide yes. whether I'm attracted to something or I'm getting, you know, kick on the butt to get out of something. A couple of years ago, I was driving down the road. I uh, was on the highway, I think. There was a storm coming in and the light was just incredible. And I saw this one particular tree that uh, was just lit, unlike any tree I'd ever seen before. And it was just beautiful and powerful and very attractive to me. And so... I pulled over on the side of the road and I got out and I walked up to this place and I took some pictures of it, you know, and I spent some time kind of exploring it. And I got this really beautiful picture back from it. And at the time when I shared it, it was one of the most popular pictures, you know, that that I'd had. A lot of people resonated with it. But the thing I thought about is that in terms of, you know, my own journey of starting on the banks of the river and then coming to a place where in many moments of my life, I feel in the center of the river, it didn't happen in one leap. It wasn't like somebody decides, well, I'm going to the center of the river today. See you later, bank. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's this slow progression of steps that are so tiny, they would be missed by most people. And they're tiny steps such as you're driving down the road, You've got to get to the place at a certain time. If you don't, people are going to be upset with you. And you think, but the tree is so beautiful. But another part of you says, yeah, but you got to be there on time. And so you don't stop. The only way to make an entire photographic book of beautiful landscapes is to stop. And not just once, but again and again and again and again. And so as a person makes a practice of honoring and paying attention to that attraction, I completely agree and and resonate so deeply with what you said that every time that that beauty calls you, there's a clue in it. There's a next step in it. And it's for you specifically. And I think that is God talking to us. You know, that is our own destiny calling us. And a lot of time we're like, not right now. I'm I'm busy. I have to get to, you know, this, this dentist appointment. And then you have John Lennon, incredibly powerful artist, arguably one of the more powerful artists who's ever lived. He says, life is what's happening while you're busy making other plans, speaking to that exact same kind of flow.
I, I want to go back to another verse from this hierarchy. It's an amazing concept that what he's talking about to get rid of the ego, to change that capital I to little I. He says, I will then become free from the tricks of life and relieved from the duality of the world. These two things that it, both of them are constantly surrounding us. Duality is constantly surrounding us. This or that, this or that. Even when we want to create, we're dealing with duality. When I come to my studio, if I tell myself that, do I want to paint or I don't want to paint, then I'm dealing with a duality. All I care about is to maintain my environment, to connect with me as I am in that mood, that time. While I'm doing this thing, slowly an attraction develops without my intending to reach it. Suddenly I am painting without knowing when I started. So that attraction is not something that we're aware of and we're looking for it. It also reminds me one time this summer, I had this extraordinary experience. I was in Berlin at this music festival and one of my favorite uh, artists was there, somebody who I've listened to for years. And it was a very intimate musical experience. And I happened to be friends with some of the people that were playing, so I got to come in early. And uh, by the time that she ended up playing, I was about seven or eight feet from her. And she's, you know, a world-class musician, just an incredible artist. And she sang this new song I had never heard before. And as she started singing it, I could feel a certain part of my brain just shifting and changing and dancing in this very dramatic way. I have practiced a lot of awareness of my body, and so I'm often aware of my body functions, and nothing like this had ever happened to me before. And as she was singing the song, and as soon as all that was happening, I instantly became aware that this song had been written for me specifically. And that doesn't mean that it wasn't also written for many other people specifically, but I had an awareness in my body that my body was meant to hear this song. It was an incredible beauty. There was an incredible clue inside it for, for changing. And one of the biggest differences between myself and my personal practice and what's more common to practice is when I hear the voice of beauty, I stop and I listen and I honor it. And as simple as that might seem, that is one step into the river. Every single time you do that, it's one step. And as I said, it never happens in a big leap, but you look back and you've done that thousands and thousands of times. Not only do you keep going closer and closer to the center of the river, it becomes ingrained to be a natural place for you. And then the other thing that came to me was this beautiful thing about the duality is so, so powerful because Jesus, I think, exemplified in so many ways this what I would call the third way, because he would constantly be trapped by these very intelligent, you know, lawyers. They didn't like how powerful he was. They didn't like his effect on the people. So they're always trying to trick him. And they would come up with these very, very clever, you know, questions that both answers were wrong. And they would say things like, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And at this time, of course, the Jewish people were subjugated. So he was seen as a revolutionary. He was seen as a possible source of freedom. 
And so if he said, no, it's not lawful to pay the taxes, the Romans would have come and taken him away. But if he said, yes, it is lawful, he would have lost the respect of the people. So instead of going with their whole duality plan, he comes up with something completely different that they never expected. And he says, give me a coin. And they're like, what? And he's like, give me a coin. And so they hand him a coin. And right in that moment, they know they've already lost. He takes the coin, he looks at it. And he says, whose face is this on here? And they say, well, it's Caesar's. And he hands it back and he says, well, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what, what's God's. And this brilliant third way just all of a sudden appears where there's, certain, there's just simply wasn't a third way to any of the other eyes. And I think that whole scenario really ties into this idea of the concealed power. Because often we're playing with this duality of yes or no, wrong and right, you know, good and evil. We're constantly in the shift of that. And the problem with that is when you completely are lost in one of those sides, you're instantly creating the other side as soon as you do it. So you never really get anywhere playing in that, in that duality. And as soon as you're dealing in that realm where the dualities end, there's a whole different kind of living. There's a whole different kind of way of being in the world that is neither this or that. It's both at the same time, which to me is strikingly similar to how life is made of this mix of the sunlight and, and the earth. That's what plants are made up of, two completely separate things, this earth matter material and then this ethereal power source. But life is this mix of both. It's not just the light, it's not just the earth, it's a mix. And as soon as you have that mix, you're literally dealing with a whole new element. It's a third element. How do we practice just getting rid of that duality? Duality is with us. Dark and light is with us. Masculine, feminine is with us. There's no escape from it. Everything in life is dealing with duality. So dissolving that together is why we have personal intelligence my intelligence as a person, that ego with a lowercase e, has that intelligence to unite that duality. That is what our function as human being is versus animals. To get rid of that duality is bringing them together. Yes. I go to watch the sunrise, sometimes on Sundays, as you know, and... Last year, I was watching the sunrise on the Pacific, and it was fabulous. And, and I was thinking, wow, this is so beautiful. What a beautiful life. And then there was this smell of the ocean from down below that was bothering me. <laughs> Suddenly, I caught myself that, wait a minute, that is smell of life. Mm. This is not stinking smell. My judgment is making it stinking smell. Mm. And I began to take some deep breath of that. And I began to recognize that this is the smell of life. There's nothing wrong about it. Take mm. it in, take it in. Mm. And suddenly that beautiful sunrise was merging into this aroma of the ocean. And I created this whole world for myself, which I was out of the duality. Mm. 
And that is the way that we can really reach that moment of being out of duality. Yes. Because the moment you're out of duality, you're out of your ego. Because the function of the ego is to separate. Yes. The duality is gone, the ego is gone. You're united. That is when we create work of art. Yes. That is when that duality is completely gone. The union of the opposites. Exactly. Distraction seems to be this pull that we have towards the duality, and attraction seems to be this pull that we have towards the union. And I think even in what we're talking about with the beauty, I feel a deep attraction towards the beauty, and I feel a distraction towards, towards those. And those seem to be just two different ways to go about it. But both pull us. That's what a distraction is. It's something that was important enough to us that we decided you know, to go that direction. But there's that connotation with distraction that you kind of missed out on the thing that was, was really there. And again, like it reminds me of another story of Jesus, where Mary and Martha are like hosting a workshop for Jesus. And Jesus is doing his own version of a retreat of ridiculousness. The disciples are there and everybody's there, and, but Mary and Martha are hosting. Mary is in there just with her you know, mouth open, her ears open, her eyes wide open, listening to Jesus, soaking up every single word he's saying. And Martha's in the other room doing the dishes and like making all the food. And she just gets more and more upset about this. And during a break, she goes up to Jesus and she says, Jesus, you have to talk to Mary. Mary, Mary is supposed to be helping here. This was our thing. We're supposed to be co-hosting. I'm doing all this work there in the kitchen. And Mary is just in there listening to you. And Jesus says, peace, Martha. Mary has chosen the better portion. And I think it's so interesting because we have this Martha with us. We have this Mary with us. And those kind of represent the pull towards distraction, the pull towards attraction. And a person might say, well, yes, but those things did need to be done. And so I think an important practical element of this is to remember that, quote unquote, Jesus isn't always there. It's not always a pink morning. Sometimes we do have to walk the dog and we do have to go to the appointment. Those things are there. But in the moment when the air turns pink, when the moment when, you know, the tree on the side of the road calls to you, in the moment when you recognize this song was made for you specifically, that's the moment where we have to set everything aside and humble ourselves you know, and allow ourselves to be moved by this force because this pull, I should say, of this attraction. And I think if we just did that a few times, if we just did that a few times a day, I think people would be astounded how far they would go in a year. I think they would be blown away by who they would become in five years. I think they would be so completely unrecognizable from themselves in 10 years that they would have seemed to have become a completely different person. like to expand a lot more on this whole concept of how we can make that triangle of unity from the two. Because, you know, this is us. We are yes. the two of them. We are the solid and the softness. We are the two of them together. Salt and the water. Yeah. 
and and we've got to really work that out. I think that is really could be great way of self creation by beginning to reduce the duality that we live with by bringing the two together. The moments that we have the capability to bring them together. The times that we don't have the capability to do it. Yeah. But there are times that we are during the 24 hours to bring that duality together, to really experience the oneness, even if it's for moments. Feel the two of them together. Feel the darkness and the light. You know, one of my own things that I teach my students is, okay, this canvas, when, it, when they start, some of them, I ask him, okay, one side I want to have the whole edge, that one side black and one side white, and I want you to bring them together so in the middle it would be a gray that no one can say this is more black or more white. Then I tell them, okay, now I want you to experience that in your life. How do you transform yourself from agony to pleasure? you got to do it step by step. You can't just suddenly laugh and say, oh, in a good mood now. You've got to go these steps, just like the process of bringing the black and white together in the center. So one of the practices is really to do that, to recognize how I can develop that oneness while I'm living with duality. It's so beautiful to hear you say that. And I think the subject is something that's so deeply important to me and to my own life experience, but I think also to a lot of people out there because it's a, it's a very tricky thing. We've all had moments where we were swept away by the beauty and then they just seem to fade. And it's like the door to that land disappears and we don't know how to get back. That deep sense of loss that we feel around that is just an ache that I think a lot of people spend a lot of their life running from or convincing themselves it wasn't real or, you know, whatever. But I think on a very practical level, what comes to me, you know, as, as a part of this process of merging those two opposites is to remember and to stand in the power of choice that we have, the power of creatorship to designate what things are when they happen. And I think a really interesting example of that is one of my favorite artists who's whose music I hardly ever listen to, but just as an artist is so powerful to me, is this guy named Eminem. In the face of so much criticism, in the face of just incredible amount of parents all across the United States saying, my children are getting badly influenced by you, and you're this terrible this, and you're that, and you're this. All of these critics saying things about him, and people making fun of him because he is a rapper, you know, and he's, he's a white guy, and just so many obstacles he faced. He came out with this brilliant song, brilliant, just so powerful as an act of creation that I was stunned. And I said, this is a great spiritual man, <laughs> even though it would not appear to be that from the outside for so many reasons. But his song says, I am whatever you say I am. And if I wasn't, why would I say I am? And so someone comes to you and they say, you're this awful person. And you say, yes. And someone says, you are a beautiful person. And he says, yes. And he says, you're ruining society. Yes. You are the best thing that's happened to hip hop. Yes. And when you really start to get into that, that's when that little eye transforms in, into the big eye. Because of course, the little eye is a splinter of the universe and the big eye is the entirety. 
So I think there is this very practical step that we can do that when we face opposition, when things don't go the way that we planned, when we want somebody to like us and they say, I don't like you, there's this moment when we're facing that duality to dig even deeper into duality and to get defensive and to say, no, I'm not, and to start to fight it. But of course, the deeper you dig into that duality, you're only strengthening that distance. And it's such a surprise move to join forces with the other side right in that moment. And it's a lot like how a bullfighter fights a bull. You know, it's a lot like that. Yeah. One time I went through the same process as you're talking about, and that really lined me up with much of my works as it followed. One night, somebody had called from uh, St. Paul and left a message on my machine. I saw one of your paintings, and this is the ugliest thing I have ever seen in my life. And if you keep on doing these type of paintings, I'm going to talk with these publishers and tell them to stop doing publishing your works. And that recording was so valuable for me. There was a man who has seen one of my paintings and had gone after finding who the artist was and finding from the publisher how he can get a hold of the artist and leave a message for him on the phone to tell him how ugly his paintings are. These are the type of people that I love to deal with because it has an impact on them. It has an impact that really turns them on to whatever it is. It's not about, oh, you're beautiful, your work is beautiful, you have fantastic work, those type of things. It's about what it does to you. And I think this is very valuable to recognize in that duality. We've got to know that there are things that align us and there are things that open the gate for us to move forward. They both are needed. We need both of them. Yes. I need the limits and I need the freedom mm. to get out of the limits. Yes. That by itself is the work of an artist. Yes. And that is where the style of an artist develops. Yes. How you can make a connection between your limitations and Beautiful. your open world. Beautiful. And this is how we can really bring those duality together into oneness. Yes. It reminds me of one time I was talking about two ways of dealing with an enemy. So there's a friend, there's an enemy. And if you kill the enemy, then you don't have an enemy anymore. But the problem, of course, with killing the enemy is that the next generation rises up, you know, with hate in them to revenge. And then they kill the other side and then these long cycles happen. But if you make friends with the enemy, you also destroy the enemy. But you do it in a way that creates no gap, no loss, no emptiness to fill up for the next generation to come back. Another thing I say sometimes is that leaders say, okay. That's the first thing they always say, no matter what happens. Okay. Uh, sir, uh, the, this uh, incredible wave just came in and, and it destroyed, you know, the entire factory that we've been building. And most people are like, oh no, that's 23 years of work down the drain. And the leader says, okay. Because that's always the first thing you have to say before any true change can ever end up happening. And most people just waste precious moments, if not weeks, if not years of their life, just not accepting that, that this thing has happened. 
And I think to be a leader in our own life, to be an artist in our own life, the very first thing is this total acceptance of, of what has happened or what is, and you say, okay. And once you say, okay, now it's inside of your domain. You're not on the other side of it fighting. You say, okay, so this is what I have to work with here. From this relationship to this as a gift or as a part of what's in your domain, you feel complete and total authority to peacefully go about, you know, making whatever changes need to be made. But that first initial moment of the rejection, I think, is something that people get stuck in, and they just sometimes never get out of that. And as long as that rejection is up there, it, it is a trap. They think that it's protecting them from something, but reality is what reality is. And you going to a fictional zone of just not believing that that's what's happening isn't going to you know, do anything. So that the total acceptance of it, bringing it all in, collecting all of it, having accepting it, then going you know, out to change it seems to be a really important piece of the, of the merging. The Wisdom of Madness is produced by Rasuli, Jesh Durox, and Elizabeth Joy Windham. Our theme music is by Niklas Poshberg. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Also, if you know someone who would appreciate this podcast, we encourage you to share it, screenshot it, and airdrop it to your friends, family, and community.